I grow up, I want to be an engineer. When I grow up, I want to be an author. When I grow up, I want to be a fine art thief. When I grow up, I want to be a When I grow up, I want to be a When I grow up, I want to be a When I grow up, I want to be a When I grow up, I want to be Welcome to My Dilettante Life, where we hear from people who have cool or unusual jobs about their professional lives. I'm podcast host and resident dilettante, Hannah Binder. So uh, today I am joined by Jessica Escobar to talk with her about her career um, with language interpreting. So do you want to, Jessica, just introduce yourself and kind of give a brief overview of your career to date and kind of how you got into it? Um, Yeah, just the highlights. Absolutely. And um, good morning from Reno, Nevada. Good evening where you are in Germany, Hanan. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm very excited that you're doing this project and it's a great excuse to see each other again after all these years um, since we were in Angoulême together in France. So I, yes, my name is Jessica Escobar, as Hannah has just said, and I am a certified court interpreter for the state of Nevada. It's the latest iteration in a lifetime of a lot of different kinds of jobs all over the place. And um, I've been doing interpretation professionally for about 14 years, actually. Actually, it was right after I came back from Angoulême, France for the second time, because I went back a second year after the year you and I met. Um, I came back to Reno, Nevada, my my hometown. And, um, you know, I was kind of looking around. I started volunteering at a place called the Northern Nevada International Center. And I was just a volunteer in the office. And then I started getting sent out on assignments. <laughs> and so Nevada is, um, is a state where... Uh, certification for interpreters has existed since, I don't want to make a mistake here, but um, the, like the early two thousands only. So it's kind of still fairly recent. And there's a lot of um, people who uh, perform as ad hoc interpreters, you could say. So I wasn't certified or anything at the time. And I was sent out by the person who was then the coordinator for the international centers language bank um, to different clients, like the Reno police department or the mental health facility or whatever it was. She gave me just kind of a quick, quick brush down, like a brush up on um, what do interpreters do and, and don't and et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, weirdly enough, I think I was kind of a shoe in for that kind of a job. And it wasn't really something I had considered before, um, but I, I liked it. And so it became a supplementary source of income. And I kept doing that for a while, but I was also doing other things at the same time. You know, eventually I was teaching um, back at the community college at Truckee Meadows Community College here in Reno. I then was teaching also French at UNR, but all the while I was doing interpretation on the side. And, um, you know, eventually, you know, as time went on, I did end up getting my certification. And um, shortly after that, a job opened up full-time with the second judicial district court. And I became employed full-time as, as the full-time interpreter at the court, where I've been now for four years. Um, as the full-time interpreter there. Yeah. Four years and change. Um, So a couple of kind of uh, very basic logistical questions. A, um, which languages do you cover as an interpreter? Oh, that's a great question, especially since I've mentioned France and our time there together and teaching French. So my certification actually is not in French. Uh, It is actually for Spanish and English which is um, a much more needed language combination in this neck of the woods here in Reno, Nevada. I think Washoe County has something like almost 30% of um, 
primarily Spanish speakers. So, and the, the next language after that is Tagalog, but it comes in at like less than 2.5%. So it's, you know, quite a lot of Spanish speakers. So yes, it's Spanish and English. Um, and the certification that I have is through the state of Nevada, because you can also get federally certified in that language combination. And a couple of others, I believe like Navajo and, oh, there's another one, but um, yeah, but I'm for Spanish and English. Great. And then my other question as something that has like confused me in the past, I think I have a handle on it, but for our listeners, what's the difference between interpretation and translation? Excellent question. Okay. And this is something, so a lot of people outside of the, what we call the T and I industry, the trend, uh, the translation and interpretation industry do just kind of generically refer to interpreters as translators. And there's people, um, you know, even that I work with on a regular basis who still will kind of casually refer to me as, Oh, here comes the translator, or did you translate for such and such? But technically, um, a translator is a person who works with written documents and an interpreter works with spoken and or signed languages. So interpreters work in real time, you could say, with the people actually there and are that bridge between two live human beings or more and, uh, you know, or conferences, et cetera. Uh, and translators will be, um, you know, working at home or in an office with actual written documents, which could be works of literature or birth certificates or anything in between, anything you can think of. I have to say, living in Germany right now and now speaking a fair amount of German, I've had a couple opportunities to kind of, as you put it, like ad hoc interpret. And man, it's hard to like not only understand something in real time and then translate it, but also continue listening to what the person is saying as you're talking to someone else in a different language. I like it just talk about working your brain to the max. It's like you have to be firing on all cylinders to do it. You really do. And that's why when I've given presentations to both the court where I work and like the Washoe County Bar Association and the inns of courts and various entities, I always put up a chart that was taken from a study in which it shows like um, fMRI, so functional magnetic resonance images of your brain doing different functions. And one of them is passive listening and it lights up a little bit, you know, and then there is, um, what is it? It's passive listening. And then there's, I think, speaking. And the other one is shadowing, which is when you just repeat what somebody is saying, but in the same language as they're saying it. And then there's simultaneous interpretation, which is what you're thinking like, right. Of, and that thing is lit up like the 4th of July fireworks, you know, and it's, and it's insane. So, um, and a lot of people don't realize that. So, so that's for that reason, we, one of the best practices of interpretation is what's called team interpretation. And everyone from the United Nations to the State Department to, you know, does this um, or or should, right? Well, they certainly do, but we do have to educate a lot in like rural courts and other settings where people might not be as familiar, familiar with working with interpreters is that when you have a hearing that's longer than, I don't know, an hour, two hours, um, best practices indicate that you should have two interpreters switching off. Every could be 20 minutes, could be half an hour, could be 15 minutes, depending, but about average 20 minutes. And people ask me this all the time. Why do you guys have, why are there two interpreters here? There's only one person who needs you or why? And I say, well, it's because of interpreter fatigue and the national association of judiciary interpreters and translators has even published a position paper on it about team interpretation, best practices, because 
and so the comparison I've come up with for people is that during, let's say like a, a, any typical court hearing, whatever medical appointment, <clears throat> while everybody, all the other participants who have speaking roles, even though their jobs are hard and they're thinking, and obviously, you know, they're doing their jobs, we could compare what they're doing in their brain to like walking and what the interpreter is doing is like sprinting. So whose energy reserves are going to run out more quickly, right? Because it's using, like, like you said, it's firing on all thrusters. So kind of a longer answer to a, a simpler question, but you're absolutely right. It does. It wears you out like no other thing that I've ever done. Mm -hmm. So um, originally I was thinking I should watch there's the film with Nicole Kidman, the interpreter. And I was like, should I watch this as homework to uh, not only to kind of, you know, say I've seen it, but also then to really get at the heart of what at least Hollywood sees as, you know, what it means to be an interpreter. So um, we're going to get to kind of misconceptions in a, in a moment. But I do want to ask you, what has surprised you about working as an interpreter? Hmm. Um, well, and let me just say, I did see that film, but it's been years <laughs> and I like that she was a flautist cause I'm a violinist. So apparently that's not entirely uncommon that, that we are both interpreters and musicians, but back to your question. Um, what has surprised me about being an interpreter? Gosh, um, I don't know that I went into interpretation with any preconceived notions, honestly, because it was a career I never honestly considered for myself. I really just fell into it. Um, it's rewarding, but it's also extremely challenging. I don't know if this surprises me about it, but well, I guess one thing that surprises me about it is um, maybe the amount of misconceptions that there are around it, sort of, but I don't know if that really falls under surprise. It's more like it is a challenge sometimes, you know, when people don't really know the difference between what an interpreter is and does versus anybody who says, oh, I'm bilingual you know, and that that's, uh, I guess you could say it's a little bit surprising um, because I don't know, growing up bilingual, I guess I am aware that there are different levels of bilingualism and that speaking a certain language at home in what we would call home Spanish, right? The the lowest register of, of, of what you can speak of a language, that, which is um, familiar terms around the home and stuff, but not an academic or professional level or even necessarily a social level that's quite different than what an interpreter is, is expected to be able to do. Um, and I just would expect there to be a little bit more self-awareness about that. Maybe, um, I don't know why there would be, but, but I guess, yeah, there's just a lot of, among both bilingual and monolingual people, I guess I hear a lot of, um, surprise that the certification exam is as difficult as it is. And I say, well, it's not as difficult as what we actually do, you know, in, in courts or in medical appointments, but there's a lot of surprise about it. So there seems to be sort of a lot of, um, maybe naivete is the word, or I just think that maybe people haven't really thought it through as much. Um, like what, what kind of vocabulary do you actually need? What kind of facility do you need with languages? And especially from going from one language to another and back, it's really not word for word. It's idea for idea. And languages have different word order or they have different ways that you say things. So even if you could say something that sounds more similar to the one language in the other language, it wouldn't be the right way to say it for native speakers of that language because they're used to saying that kind of an, ex to expressing that kind of an idea with different words. Um, 
and I guess there's just not a lot of awareness about this, you know, and, and people are, are always surprised about it. And there's a lot of, I guess, yeah, you know, it's, it's, there's a lot of, yeah, I don't mean to ramble on, but I'm kind of thinking through it as I go along. I think, I think more awareness needs to be raised. You know, um, I think even, even, you know, more educated people, um, attorneys and whatnot, um, and this isn't to embarrass anybody or anything, but a lot of people use folks who, who say, oh, I'm bilingual, you know, and maybe they're, they're assistants or um, paralegals or anything like that. Nobody has ever necessarily tested how bilingual they are, but you might see that they have signed off on documents as the, as the interpreter who interpreted it. But should we really call folks who are doing these things as bilingual assistants interpreters? That's, that's an interesting question. You're listening to My Dilettante Life. Today's interview is with professional interpreter Jessica Escobar. This is giving a lot to think about, you know, when we, um, when I was working in social work, for example, we talk a lot about, especially in, in the medical setting, or if you're working with people um, under the auspices of, you know, child protective services or something like that, let's say, often a language barrier um, can arise in certain situations. And it's so easy if you don't have plentiful, easily accessible interpreting services to just use whichever member of the family speaks the most English as that informal interpreter. And there are so many, it's not only linguistic issues, like how many six-year-olds know, you know, the proper terminology for different bones in the body or for different diagnoses or, you know, all that specialized vocabulary, but then also like the ethical implications of asking a child to interpret for their parent or their grandparent around really personal, potentially really sensitive information. And I would imagine in your court setting, it's it's just the same. I mean, you're again, you're dealing with really specialized language sometimes and also with really fraught situations. And therefore, we are told to avoid using relatives um, as interpreters. But if you don't have access to a, an in-person or a phone-based interpreter in that moment, um, Sometimes people don't feel like they have any other choice. Or they don't know about those options in the first place. And that's an excellent point that you raise, Hannah. These are very serious ethical implications. You're not supposed to use relatives and especially children. And, it, you know, for and there could be conflicts of interest. What if you go to a parent-teacher conference and the kid is interpreting? You know, I mean, think about all of that that could mean. Well, your kid's slunking. She says, I'm doing great, dad. You know, I mean, um, Obviously, you know, that's just a, an exaggeration, but but it really does put people in situations that they shouldn't be in. We have cases of domestic violence. So what would happen if a child is the one who's interpreting for one of the parents about a, an act of domestic violence that the other parent committed against that parent? That's a terrible situation to put a kid into. And like you mentioned too, vocabulary issues. And it's also very infantilizing for parents, unfortunately, to have to rely on their children, which, you know, there's there's no way around living in a society where English is not your primary language or whatever, you know, in your case, German isn't the primary language, uh, wherever you are, where the children speak it better than the parents do, it's going to be infantilizing for the parents anyways, because they end up just de facto relying on their kids so much as informal interpreters or translators or whatever, and also putting the children in stressful situations where they're asked to understand and do things well beyond their cognitive and vocabulary abilities. Right. Um, but 
but at least the, you know, if we could provide interpretation or make people more aware of phone interpretation, I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a sticky issue and funding, where does funding come from? People are, are asked to pay for their own interpreters in some, in some contexts, but they don't have the money to do so. They don't even know where to start looking for an interpreter. So it's, it's pretty tricky. There's like, I saw a meme or something at one, at one point, like on Facebook, <laughs> like it's like one of the interpreter humor groups that I'm on, on Facebook. And, and it was like one of the members, I guess, is of Mexican origin and put something like, you know, <laughs> this is, this is just like a joke. Right. But, but something like, um, Mexican moms be like, or something like, why aren't you translating what these attorneys documents say for me or these medical bills? And, and the kid is like, I'm six mom. And the mom's like, then what good is it that you, that you're going to school in English, you know? <laughs> so, you know, it was like a little bit of like inside humor because there was like a Mexican community there in no way, like a racist thing or anything like that, but just a, an acknowledgement that, um, kids, you know, what, from whatever, uh, linguistic or cultural background might get put into situations like this. And that's an exaggeration, but you know, parents are desperate for somebody to interpret and kids find themselves in these positions. So yeah, and I mean, yeah, I think it's, you know, it's like you said, it it is a joke, but, um, and, and if it's the family putting the burden on the kid, I mean, a family only has so many resources, but when it's a system like a healthcare system or a court system, putting that burden on, um, a family member, regardless of who it is, you know, you kind of want to say, well, but you're the ones who have hopefully the resources and then sort of the obligation to um, provide this very important necessary service for the people that you are serving. And there is, um, and, and I always forget the, it's, it's, uh, I don't want to make a mistake on the podcast here. Um, title is a title six, title seven of the civil rights act. Let me look that up real quick, actually title six. Yes. Here it is. Yeah. Title six of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, um, which prohibits discrimination on the basis of race, color or national origin in any program or activity that receives federal funds or other federal financial assistance. Now, I know your podcast is international, so obviously we're referring to the federal government of the United States. Um, and then there was an executive order signed by President uh, Bill Clinton at the time that confirmed this once again, because Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 is often interpreted as meaning, well, national origin, hmm, language is a proxy for national origin. So therefore, if we want to avoid discrimination based on national origin, then we should avoid discrimination. Uh, you know, we should avoid unequal language access. So that's the big buzzword is language access and language justice. Some people call it like the next step, you know, true language justice, which is very difficult to achieve um, in a lot of situations for a lot of different reasons. Because even when you do provide an interpreter in the court, I guess to circle back to the question of what surprises me is how many cracks people can fall into outside of that. That's great that you have an interpreter in the courtroom, but what happens as soon as you step out of that door, now you have to navigate a website. Now you have to navigate like filing requirements and you have to Thank goodness if there's some bilingual employees around, but there's just a lot. And then that gets compounded with things like the technolo technological divide, the technology divide, which became very obvious during the pandemic when everything's shifted to remote. Um, and you just see it a lot. You know, a lot of these factors don't come unaccompanied. So sometimes people are at a disadvantage because of their language, but they're also at, at a disadvantage because of other parts of their background socioeconomically. So if somebody immigrated from a more rural area where they, you know, I don't know, maybe they already had a smartphone or whatever, but 
but not a lot of reason to have to use the internet or navigate in that kind of a virtual world. Now they're in a different country with a different dominant language and having to navigate endless kinds of things that sometimes are even a little tricky for people who are college educated or grew up here. And we're asking folks to do things that are quite complicated or people will say, well, go to, and they'll give the website name, right? But the website name is in English, you know, so you would have to spell that out, you know, and I, and I heard that even with like the, the COVID things, like they, there was like, you know, the County did like an announcement for COVID and then they tried to do it in Spanish. But when they actually gave the website name, it was all read in English and it wasn't spelled out or anything, which is what would need to happen. So these are some of the areas where people don't realize people could be falling into cracks is that you have to spell websites out letter for letter. If the website is like a word that is in another language that somebody just won't understand because they don't speak that language. And you have to, and there's just a number of things like that. There's just a number of things where people fall into the cracks and that there's compound, like their intersectionality, I guess you would call it of different kinds of disadvantages and stuff. So yeah. Well, now that we've talked about some of the kind of heavy um, implications of, of working in this field, um, what are some of the coolest parts of your job? The coolest parts of my job, um, I have to say, like, I love the people that I work with. And that is like, not only the, what we call LEPs, people of limited English proficiency, um, but also the, my coworkers and the administrators of the court, like the bosses, I, I, I just on a personal level, I feel like I, I have a voice there and that it's taken seriously and that if something isn't known and I bring it to their attention, they care and it matters. And so that's kind of just a personal thing, just because of where I am and where I work and it, with interpret and, and I'm sure not everybody is as lucky as I am. And so I count those blessings every day because as many frustrations as a job like this can have in a sense, always being the minority voice, because the only whatever interpreter or the only person who's seeing some of these problems because of the positions that I get put into as an interpreter, despite all of that. So it's more important than ever to have a supportive team, which I do, which is a a blessing. (laughs) It's amazing. Um, so there's that. And in terms of interpretation in general, um, it's like super mentally stimulating. Actually, you have to be on your toes while you're performing it, but you also are studying outside of your assignments. And that's another thing that people might not realize is, I actually made one of our, our, our IT people laugh one time. Um, I said, I have to go study for my case. And he laughed because he knows I'm kind of over the top and I'm always extra and running on a thousand percent. So I think he thought that I was like telling a joke. Like if I said, I have to go study for my blood test or something. Right. <laughs> um, but I, but I was like, no, no, don't laugh. Like I really mean it. And I explained why. And of course he immediately understood um, because well, why would I have to study? Don't I already speak Spanish and English? Well, yeah, he didn't say that, by the way, but I'm saying like, I'm assuming that sometimes um, people wouldn't think of this because, well, if you're bilingual, you're bilingual, but we're not walking encyclopedias. We are, we are people. And if I'm going to have to interpret for a, um, an expert witness on the stand, who's a forensic pathologist or is specialized in like finding, um, causes, uh, of fires, you know, from ruins or whatever, I don't know how many people have command that kind of vocabulary on a day-to-day basis. So of course you need, sometimes even just 
interpreting a person's resume on the stand, you know, the attorney asks the question, can you tell us a little bit about your background? Well, yes, I was the chair of blah, 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 and a bunch of like super technical scientific terms. So, so, so that's something, um, you know, that surprises people is that you do have to study outside of it, but I like it. I like it. It can be stressful if you, if you have to cram too much, or if you don't get the documents in advance, or if you feel like you're unprepared, but when you have a chance to prepare, it's super rewarding because you feel like you're learning and growing and you're getting better at your languages all the time. Um, so that's rewarding. And obviously being that voice there for people who wouldn't be otherwise able to communicate with each other. And a misconception is that, oh, I'm there for the Spanish speakers. No, 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 no. I'm there for the Spanish and the English speakers. The English speakers need to understand what the Spanish speakers are saying just as much. Oh, you know, here's Miss Interpreter. She's here for this person. Mm, I'm here for the interaction that's going to happen between that person and the court. So I'm here for all of the stakeholders, right? So, um, and it's very rewarding to be able to be that bridge, um, you know. If you are enjoying My Dilettante Life so far, that's great. I'd love it if you took a moment to share the podcast with your community of friends, family, coworkers, and neighbors. Podcasts don't exist in a vacuum, and this one depends on people like you to spread the word so more listeners can hear from some seriously cool guests. Remember, you can follow My Dilettante Life on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, as well as finding new episodes on the website at hannabinder.com slash mydilettantelife. That's H-A-N-A-B-I-N-D-E-R dot com slash my-dilettante-life. Thanks. One question I, I think that's come up for me in, in hearing you talk about this, I mean, you're talking about some of the sort of specialized language with subject matter experts or kind of jargony or really um, technical terms. But I'm also thinking about, so your kind of linguistic background with Spanish is mostly Colombian, if I recall correctly. That's right. Yes. What a good memory. And so, um, you know, there's a huge amount of the world and population um, that speaks Spanish. But as I understand, there can be quite a lot of variations in terms of not only slang, but also like really how formal language is used between, you know, countries in the Western Hemisphere, between Central America and South America, between individual countries in South America, between Spain. And, you know, so I would imagine you also have some studying to do just to sort of understand a lot of those regional or country or, yeah, location-specific differences. Oh, you're so right. I mean, the Spanish-speaking world is huge. There's even pockets of Spanish speakers in like North Africa. I heard like a whole podcast about it, you know? So yeah, my family's Spanish is Colombian. Both of my parents are originally from Bogota, the capital of Colombia. And shout out to, um, you know, <laughs> like the movie Encanto and putting Colombia on the map for a lot of folks. And it's C-O-L-O-M-B-I-A because I... <laughs> I like we have the tendency here in the states to spell it C O L U M B I A because of our own map names that are that way. But yeah, so Colombian Spanish is what I grew up speaking and hearing and and whatnot at home. And but but Colombians are actually quite the minority ethnically 
in Washoe County, which is where I actually do my interpreting, I usually am dealing with people of Mexican origin, of Salvadorian origin, Guatemalan, Honduran. I would say those are the heavy hitters around here. Every now and then I've interpreted for a person from Puerto Rico, maybe, or somewhere. I think I did interpret for a lady who was from Colombia at one point, but that's, that would be the, the minority around here. And so, yeah, I mean, so some of the stuff, you know, I have to learn on the field, so to speak. I, and, and if an interpreter doesn't know you are not, not only well within your rights to do so, but you should stop your honor. The interpreter needs a moment to consult her dictionary or your honor, the interpreter um, requests a moment to clarify um, what Mr. Such and such has said or whatever it is. And there's also workshops and things that you can, can and should take as part of your continuing education um, to, you know, there's, there's a whole series of workshops that I've seen recently and over the years for Cuban Spanish, which um, apparently seems quite different in the use of some terminology and whatnot. So, but nobody's going to know everything. And I think that that's the important thing to remember. You can really get in your head about it and, oh my gosh, I'm never going to speak all the Spanishes of the world because not only all the countries, but it's all the regions. And sometimes there's stuff that's specific to a town or whatever. You know how that is, you know, and we see that in the States, so it's not one size fits all and something could mean the opposite in another, in another place. I have had to ask for clarification several times and that's okay. And you do. And it's part of being professional. And I think people appreciate that because they can see that you're not just making stuff up, that you're really trying to be a professional about it. I love hearing this from you because um, while I am in no way close to being able to interpret like German or French and English, um, I, I just have really enjoyed um, the, the mental challenge of continuing to learn a language while realizing that I am never going to master this language, not having learned it, you know, as a, a native speaker. Um, so there's always going to be something new to learn. Um, I guess the way that there is in English, right? Like, I'm sure I don't know all the words in the English language, even though I was raised speaking it. Um but it's like it is the continued pursuit of knowing more about the language that makes it so interesting because there's always something new to discover. I just learned the German word for umpteen, which is such a cool word in English. And now I'm so excited that I can say it in German. But like, well, how do you say it? Zig. <laughs> Z-I-G. Zig. Zig? Zig? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and that means umpteen? Yeah. That is so cool. <laughs> I wouldn't so even have thought that like they had new, one. Yeah, new morsels to discover, um, which is really, I guess some people might see it as discouraging that you're never going to master a language entirely, but I see it as just like, it means that it's always going to give you new and exciting things to learn. That's how I see it too, Hannah. I, I think that, you know, you can, especially when you have like a, a very kind of a curious mind and, and you always are wanting to learn, um, which is, I think every human being's province really. Um, but some people get more restless than others, I think when they're bored and, and I'm certainly one of them. I, I imagine you are too, just from what I know about your very adventuresome, um, to my eyes lifestyle, um, throughout the years. And, um, and so I think that this, this profession, you can really do so much with it and you're always learning. And, um, I, I would, I don't think there's ever been a day in my job that I've been bored. I mean, stressed. Sure. Sometimes I am like, wait a minute, I know I have a project. Where's my to-do list. I mean, but, but, or something, you know, if, if I have some time between hearings or something and I'm doing background projects because I am staff interpreter. So I do keep a regular schedule. Um, but bored, I mean that, no, <laughs> 
I don't think so because there's always something more to learn and you can learn about every field and you should, you should read widely across many fields. So um, with that being said, you know, you just said that you it's never something you find boring. Are there tedious parts to your job? Um, yes. And I, I mean, I have to confess. So, and this is kind of maybe, you know, hopefully not professional suicide to admit publicly, <laughs> but you know, I would never have seen myself as a, a court interpreter of all things. It's not because the law is boring or anything like that, but it can get very, I mean, it's not, how can I put this? I, I even, you know, in the fifth grade, I thought, oh, maybe I should be a lawyer and stuff. But a lot of it is kind of technical and routine and, you know, prescribed by precedent and law and things like that. So it's, it's, it's you know, it is what it is. Um, it can be tedious to read some of like the case files sometimes that go on and on and on. Legalese per se can be kind of an overbearing form of using the language. And there is something that I, you know, I'm hoping that we'll see more of in the future. There's something called the plain English language movement, which would seek to bring plainer English to legal proceedings, which would be really nice, you know, because it's even sometimes hard for English, native English speakers to understand some of these highly specific terms. Um, so some of that can get a little tedious. I mean, it's interesting. And when you crack the code and figure it out, it's, it's, it's a challenge. It's a puzzle, right? But sometimes, you know, it can be a little overwhelming when you see that there's like 40 pages to that document you're like oh my gosh okay let's see what's in here that's going to be problematic and tricky to and and legalese uses terms that we speak that we use outside of legalese but it uses it in a different way also so so there's that um and also i have like a love hate relationship with translation so some many as, as a staff interpreter, you know, in during times when I'm not actively interpreting, I'm doing other things. And one of those things is doing translation projects for the court. And it can be fun. Certainly it's a challenge as well. Right. But it's not working with people and I'm a perfectionist and it's a lot of looking at the computer and it's lonely and yeah. And like, I just, I knock, I, I just, I don't think I would ever just choose to be a professional translator all the time. I cannot even wrap my head around these amazing translators who, who translate entire works of literature, man, like books and all these things. I mean, at one point I remember through LinkedIn several years ago, somebody reached out to me, offering me this amazing opportunity to translate a children's book about the life of Barack Obama. And it would have been amazing, but I just, I don't love translating as much as I love interpreting. I, there's a reason why I'm an interpreter and not a full-time translator. Like I just, that would be just too much loneliness and too much tedious, like looking everything up and comparing and coming back to it. And, oh, did I do it the best way? Not to say that it's not challenging, but, and rewarding in that sense. But yeah, so, you know, yeah, <laughs> that's not so much related to interpreting itself, but to the something else that falls under the umbrella of a full-time interpreter's job description. You're kind of like the de facto translator for where you are, which is fine, you know, and you know, it, it really is like I, it's, it's fine and I do it, but it is quite different. Yeah. And not what you would choose to spend the majority of your time doing. It sounds like. No, if I had like a 40 hour work week of all written translations, I don't think that would be a good fit for my personality at all. <laughs> and it's not that I'm not studious or anything like that. I'm very studious, but there needs to be a reward at the end of the study. So if I'm, if I'm going to practice violin, which is tedious or can be, 
I'd better be getting to rehearsal in a concert soon. And if I'm going to be, you know, reading up on all these things and coming up with amazing translations for these things, I'd better have a chance to like be on stage, so to speak, in the courthouse at some point and not just like, you know, <laughs> yeah, it's just more rewarding for me. It's just, I'm a, I'm more of a people person in that sense. I know we've touched on this already a little bit, but, um, what are some of the biggest differences that you see between professional interpretation and people who do it on kind of a hobby basis, whether there's someone who just says, well, I'm bilingual and they, you know, just then kind of translate informally. Um, that's a really good question and a very important one, actually. Um, so not only um, language proficiency might be very different and sometimes is, um, and I have unfortunately experienced that firsthand. I've seen that. Um, because of course, a person who has never been tested or graded in any way whatsoever can say, I'm bilingual and I'm an interpreter. And if everybody that they're interpreting for is monolingual in their respective languages, there's not a single person there who can vouch for that, right? So that's something that that can happen, um, which is, you know, insufficient language proficiency, and that happens often. Another one, and this is huge, is a lack of knowledge about the interpreter's code of ethics. So there are some very specific do's and don'ts for professional and for all interpreters. And if you were never trained in any way or even have taken so much as a class in it or anything, um, you wouldn't necessarily know. And and it makes, I, there's there's been uh, works, academic works published on, you know, should professional interpreters be used in police interviews, for instance? A lot of police departments don't. And it's no, nowhere in the law, as far as I know, does it say that attorney's offices, police departments, or any of those really important <laughs> agencies are obligated to use a certified or qualified interpreter? Because um, not all languages have certification tests available, but you can do like an oral proficiency interview or something else. There's nothing that says that. So people use like whoever sometimes. And um it's, it's, it's not good. There's a study that actually compares like the kinds of mistakes that people made when they were not professional interpreters versus like they wouldn't have made them if they were. And it, it can be things as simple as interpreting in the third person. So for example, if, if, if you and I were speaking through an interpreter who's professional, the interpreter would be relaying the words. Exactly. I say, hi, Hannah, how are you? The interpreter says in German, let's say, hi, Hannah, how are you? And so on. An an unprofessional interpreter will say, she says, uh, she wants to know how you are. She wants to know how you're doing. Right. So that third person thing, and it's something we, we have to educate our clients about as well. We have to say, okay, you speak to each other directly in the first person that adds confusion. Think about the confusion that adds when somebody's telling a story. Well, the, the guy that broke into my house was X, Y, or Z. And then somebody says, well, is he, is he this? And well, now who's he? Is the he the guy in the story or is the he the guy who's in front of you who just said that, that you're trying, right? And so that's that's one thing. Um, interpreters who are not professional, let's call them like bilingual, bilingual um, helpers, okay? And they might, they, they won't know what's outside of the purview of an interpreter. So, and, and if the client doesn't know either, they get asked for inappropriate things. Can you explain to, can you go to this room and uh, go over this document with this person and explain to them this, that, or that? Uh, no, actually. But if you come with me, counsel, I'll be happy to interpret between the two of you. As a, and, now, and I understand, I read somewhere at one point that I think it was Ireland or something, I might be wrong, where interpreters are expected to take on some of these other functions. Um, 
I have very mixed feelings about that. And I don't want to speak about something that I don't know about and I'm not fully informed about, but I don't, I don't know how they do it. Um, but to me, and certainly in the United States, that is well outside of an interpreter's purview and not something that we should get into because that blend that blurs the roles of us as neutral third party facilitators of communication and puts us in the role of advocate or something else. Right. And a person who is not a professional interpreter may not know this. And, and so they may just take on additional responsibilities. They may feel that they're an advocate for people of limited English proficiency and advise them on what to say or don't say, you know, I mean, that's completely inappropriate. That's, that's a violation of interpreter ethics. So things of that nature. And of course, mistranslated things, uh, omitting things, paraphrasing, maybe, you know, maybe somebody said something really long and the interpreter like just gives the gist. No, <laughs> you know, so there's all kinds of things that go wrong. And these things can have literal life and death consequences in a medical setting, in a legal setting, police law enforcement setting. Um, so more people need to be aware of this, honestly. And that, you know, everybody from stakeholders, especially stakeholders who are the ones usually hiring the interpreters. Wow. Yeah, no, that, that gives, um, that those are some really profound things to think about and the, the impacts of not having, um, proper interpretation. Mm-hmm. So what would you tell someone who um, is thinking of becoming an interpreter? I, it's funny you should ask, cause I, <laughs> I get approached by, by folks all the time who are thinking about it or they want to learn more about it. And the first thing I say is, um, I think the, the first thing that I think I would advise anybody to do is to do like a self-assessment. And there are some available online, you know, like the National Center for State Courts has one. Um, the International Language Roundtable has some. There's self-assessments that you yourself can read and ask yourself, am I at this level, at this level? Oh, I am, I am able to sustain a conversation about X, Y, or Z. Uh, or I can converse on topics ranging from business to academic subjects, or I'm mostly just familiar with the words of things around the house and stuff that you would say in family to kind of, so, so the first thing I would say is to sort of like analyze yourself and where you're at, because you don't want any surprises and you don't want to like go in and pay a bunch of money for something if you weren't prepared to take it. Um, so kind of find out where you are first, you know, and, and, and then see where you're identify what your problem areas are. Do you get a lot of language interference? Like, do you speak your other language? Like you speak English, except for with words from that language, like, but with a grammatical structure that is English and that would not make sense to a speaker of that other language, maybe want to fix that, you know? So I say, analyze yourself, um, read broadly across all kinds of subjects because, the interpreter is the one person in the room who needs to know every every word, so to speak. Obviously, you know, you can look things up, um, but you do have to stop proceedings to do that. Um, practice and record yourself. So listen to the news, listen to radio, listen to shows, whatever, and uh, record yourself interpreting it. Uh, maybe start by shadowing, by just repeating in the same language. And as you get better with that, then start actually attempting to interpret it into the other language and in both directions, from one language to the other and from the other language to this one, if, if you're going for a, a, a profession that's going to require both. Um, and then listen to the recordings if you can and compare if you can to the original sources, see how you did. You might be surprised. Um, 
consume media in, in the language that you are mostly uh, looking to work in. And we we're, we're very privileged that Netflix and Disney plus, and a lot of those streaming providers these days and DVDs of old too, that were recorded in various language tracks, depending on what language you're looking for, you know, you might have to get more creative, but a lot of media these days is available in different languages, be it with subtitles or dubbing, um, podcasts. Hello. Right. So podcasts in different languages for free, really. I mean, anybody who has a smartphone can listen to a podcast these days and most everybody does, I have to say. So podcasts and, um, I don't know if, if you have audio novels, whatever it is, get exposure to it. Um, join a language club or make sure you have some kind of a linguistic community to practice with, um, build that up then, you know, and then, work on specific terminology for the field that you want to get into and get good at that. There's practice tests that are available. I know at least for like the um, state court certification exams um, that are around and many of them free. So just, just prepare. And, and the main thing is to just know that it can be done and just be willing to put in whatever work needs to be done. It might be easier for some than for others, depending on where they are in their language journey, natural abilities, uh, opportunities that they were exposed to growing up, whatever it was. But I know a girl who she was monolingual entirely in English until the age of 16, which is past the even second period of language acquisition as identified by linguists, or at least as it was identified when I went to college, which was what, 20 years ago. So, <laughs> so who knows if that has changed, but 16, right? I mean, it's, it's old for starting to learn a language from scratch, but she wanted to, and she failed the first time at the certification exam. Didn't realize how much she had left to learn, tried again harder. And I think the following year passed it and now is working on certification in a third language. And we're talking federal certification, which has, I think, like a less than 4% pass rate, whereas the state exams have like a 10%, I think, on average pass rate. So can it be done? Yes. Um, can everybody do it? That I'm not so sure. Um, and I think every, that's going to be up to each person to sort of decide for themselves how much effort is worth it to them and how much time they're willing to put into it. But I think we all know that different people are going to naturally have a little more or less difficulty with different kinds of activities. But I think if you work hard, you know, there's people who have taken the test several times and eventually passed it. Um, I don't know to each individual, but that would be, those would be my tips, my long-winded tips. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this is one of my favorite questions that I get to ask people. What would you be doing if you weren't an interpreter? Oh my gosh. Um, well, um, I might've mentioned earlier and, and, you know, um, that I'm also a violinist with the Reno Philharmonic Orchestra and, and some other groups too. Um, so, but I, 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 I don't think I'd be doing that full-time. I can't in Reno because none of our orchestras are full-time per se, although you can make a living off of, off of music alone by giving private lessons and supplementing and doing other things music related, um, or teaching it, but I don't think I would do that full-time. I love it, but I, I don't think I would do it full time. Um, I would maybe um, go back to teaching because I've done that. At, um, I've taught at like the community college here and at the university. Um, I taught like French and anthropology. I love that. I don't like grading papers though. And I don't like all the, you know, there's a lot of work that goes on unremunerated outside of office hours or class time as, as anybody who's been any kind of educator knows. 
Um, so, but I do love teaching, I have to say, and I do miss my students. So I, I love that. Um, golly, I don't know. I used to work in archaeology and that was fun, but I don't think I would do that full time. Hannah, I'm just a big kid. Like I, I keep waiting to grow up because like things just kind of happen to me. And it's like, all of a sudden I blink my eyes and I've been at this wonderful job for four years, but in a way it's like, I never asked for it. It just sort of, I don't know, it just kind of happened. I was like, well, I, I guess I'll take the certification exam and what the heck, if I fail, I fail. And if I don't, then cool bullet point for my resume. And then I passed. And then two or three months later, this position opened up and I was like, well, I met the people while I was freelancing and everybody seems really nice. You know, I can really see myself here. Bam. You know? So ah, I've been one of those people that like, I've been a little bit of a leaf in the wind, you could say in some senses. And jobs and opportunities have often found me at the right time. Not to say that I haven't worked for them, but, but there's lots of opportunities that can happen. And maybe I have chosen the ones that most appeal to me. I don't know. That was a very long-winded way of saying, I'm not really sure. <laughs> I like teaching and stuff. <laughs> it sounds like you are um, just as much a dilettante as I am kind of uh, dabbling in things as they come along, but not necessarily committing to to certain things, despite your 14 years in interpretation, um, necessarily committing to something for, you know, the foreseeable future. Well, yeah, 14 years in interpretation, 14, I think going on 15 at this point and violin, it's been even longer. My gosh, like, cause I was, uh, I'm 41 now. And I was 18 when I started playing professionally with the, with the Reno Phil, not as a contract player, I'm a substitute player, but I get called pretty often. And so, I mean, but again, I think that part of the reason I can do these jobs for as long as I do them too, is because they're not full-time necessarily. And I always have other things going too. And so, yeah, I think if I only ever just did one thing in my life, I think I would get too consumed by it. And I just, I like to use my life, my time and my mind in different ways at any given time. But interpretation is good for that too, honestly, because it does put you in touch with many different kinds of subjects and people. So yeah. Would you say, do you see yourself as um, an expert in interpretation? Oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> I have, I think a ways to go before I would consider myself at the level of some of the people I see as my mentors in interpretation. Um, you know, there's always somebody who knows more. There's always somebody who's been doing it for longer. If anything, I came in through the back door of interpretation. I, I did it for 10 years without any certification, right? Which I don't really advise people to do, right? But I can't be a hypocrite. That's how I did it. And so, and then I had like no training and then I started, and then I got certified after like not even studying that much. Cause I guess the 10 years in the field did me good. And then I started taking classes. So it was like, I did absolutely everything in reverse. Um, and I guess I sort of become a de facto mini expert of sorts. I certainly like I'm, I'm fortunate and privileged, um, that people sort of in, in my area here have sort of come to see me as that. And they'll come to me asking for questions and advice and guidance and, you know, so I guess a more of an expert than, than a lot of the people around here for sure, just because I do it and I've been doing it. Um, but I mean, there's always somebody who's more expert. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm an expert light. <laughs> <How's that? laughs> I'm becoming ever more an expert, but I've got a lot to learn still, but yeah, I would say much more than I was four years ago for sure. So you're more on the expert end of the spectrum. If you're not all the way toward the end of the spectrum. <laughs> Uh, well, and I have really high standards for myself too. So like, I mean, 
what would I even consider an expert? I guess somebody who's been doing it for 40 years in like a medical, legal, and conference setting. I don't know, right? That would be like super expert plus an academic with a PhD in it who's like currently conducting studies about uh, the impact of interpretation translating. That's like, whoa, expert with a capital E. I would say I'm I'm a I'm pretty decent expert in my own neck of the woods, which is just, you know, I know what you do day to day. I know do's and don'ts, you know, um, I know a few of the differences between the code of ethics for legal interpreters versus medical interpreters. Um, but you know, so in my little field and in my little corner of the woods, I would say, yeah, I, I would say that I am a, a, a bit of an expert if, if it's not too, <laughs> you know, heavy handed to use that term, but that there's certainly always people who are, you know, the academics who are studying it more in depth and understand aspects of it that I may not have even thought of. Um, so I'm still a baby expert, I think, <laughs> comparatively speaking to those heavy hitters, frankly, you know, yes. <laughs> so my last question for you is just, um, what would you like to be asked about your career as an interpreter? Oh, that's a wonderful question. Um, I think, I think maybe I would love it if people asked me, how could we make this better? And I don't know that that's so much a question about interpretation as a profession, but just the things we get exposed to as an interpretation, as an interpreter, the things that we see, how could we all work as a team to make this better? What can we do? You know, and I think that that would be really nice to sort of feel that there's that open dialogue um, between all the stakeholders and, and that people all are, in, uh, that people would even be aware that there are things that could be made better, et cetera, et cetera. And that willingness to collaborate, to make that better. Um, Cause there's things, you know, there's things that we need to do to, to make things better. I think always, you know, there's always, and, and I don't know about, you know, in terms of an expert of, of things, Outside of this, I am absolutely not. I don't know things about budgeting. I don't know things about how organizations and bureaucracies work or funding or any of that stuff, but that might be good. Um, what else would I like to be asked about interpretation? Maybe, I don't know. I do get asked by people how it is, or they say, oh, I can't imagine doing this. This seems hard or something. So that's nice when there's like some awareness of that because you feel understood and with understanding come accommodations that are good for everybody. Um, I don't know. I think it's nice to just sort of be acknowledged because it is, I don't know if I want to say a minority profession, but, but I think not just in the States, but around the world, not a lot of people really know what we do or what is entailed in it or what, or what really is happening when you do speak a language at that level or, or go between languages. So maybe just more curiosity about it. And like I said, I do get a lot of people who are curious about it. When I grow up, I want to be an archaeologist. I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of My Dilettante Life. I'm your host, Hannah Binder. The podcast theme music was composed by Anna Bradley, with sound editing assistance from Yuli Anerson. The podcast logo was designed by Ashley Burke, with help from model Ivy Bean. Thanks to our guests, and to all our listeners for tuning in. If you have follow-up questions for a guest, send them in for a chance to be featured on an upcoming Audience Asks segment. 
My Dilettante Life is available wherever you get your podcasts, as well as directly at hannabinder.com slash mydilettantelife. That's H-A-N-A-B-I-N-D-E-R dot com slash my dash dilettante dash life. Tschüss!